Next up here in my series of conversations at Educause 2023 in Chicago is Joe Pachanat. He is the director of Educause's cybersecurity program. He talks to the new opportunities for improvement and awareness when it comes to cybersecurity and share some best practices for higher ed IT leaders to stay on the defensive. Have a listen. Okay, Joseph, thanks so much for taking the time to meet with me today. I really appreciate it. I know we're, we're in the thick of Educause here in Chicago. Again, I like to have these conversations via Zoom as much as possible, right. but nothing beats having kind of an in-person sort. And uh, you know, the energy that's coming from your members who are our listeners, it's just a, a really positive experience. So I appreciate you uh, sharing uh, your insights. Thank you, Kevin. Happy to be here. And I know that, it, that your expertise, you know, the, the variety of subjects that our listeners, your members are dealing with, cybersecurity continues to seem to be the, the number one pain point. Talk a little bit about the current state of play when it comes to cybersecurity in, in higher ed. Sure. So obviously, ransomware is still one of the biggest issues that we're seeing in higher ed. And there are tools out there that that help mitigate it, but it really, I still think it comes down to user education because it is really at the end user level, whether that is someone on their personal device or just, you know, whether they get a business email compromise, it really comes down to uh, the users having an understanding of the risks that they're facing and being part of the solution. And when you talk about user, um, my first instance, is to think student, but you're also talking faculty and Absolutely. So it's, yeah. it's, it's everyone at the institution, whether that is faculty, the staff that work at the institution, contractors, but then again, a large chunk of it is going to be the student body. Yeah. Although when I look at my own children, they seem to be more savvy about these things than, than I am necessarily. Well, so how do you, how do you work that idea of user behavior uh, into policy? Well, some of it comes from uh, awareness and education programs at institutions. So if they are, if the cybersecurity professionals are working with uh, the student body, such as different institutions having like, um, like a, a cyber education fair, and they're educating the student body on what the risks are, what they can do to protect themselves, and how that in turn will protect the institution and protect themselves down the line. Okay. Okay. Um, maybe you can get into a little bit more of the kind of in the, the, the day of the life. I mean, is that like something that you are, when you talk about education, of, right. is this a, a workshop at the beginning of the year? Or is this kind of like constant um, reminders or notifications? Some of it is going to be, you know, um, maybe timed at the beginnings of the semester or something like that. And some of it is going to be continual um, programs. Uh, I know that my former institution, uh, Indiana University, I see constant things on social media about don't share your passwords and just different reminders about the importance of um, cybersecurity awareness. So it's all over social media targeted to the students. So you yeah. have a better understanding. And when it comes to responsibilities at the leadership level, are we talking about IT directors? Or are we? Well, it depends on the shop because yeah. sometimes cybersecurity professionals are embedded within the IT organizations and sometimes they have uh, they're outside of the organization. Okay. So it, it really depends on the leadership. Now, a lot of the larger institutions have brought uh, cybersecurity and privacy outside of IT, um, and they work at a uh, university level rather than just focusing 
in on the cybersecurity and privacy needs of the IT department. I know it's a little confusing, but it, it's a bit nuanced. So by bringing cybersecurity and privacy out of the IT department, they're looking at it uh, system-wide rather than just a technology issue. Right, right. Talk, um, talk a little bit about two-factor authentication. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the latest trend, at least when I'm, I'm trying to upgrade my apps. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> how, so, does it, how does that relate in the, the university aspect? So two-factor authentication is, or multi-factor authentication, depending on how you describe it. Um, just think of it as having another um, lock and key to your account. So there are different types of authentication. Sometimes it's a password. It, that's something you know. Whereas two-factor authentication is something that you have. Something that you are would be like biometrics, so like your fingerprint or your uh, your iris scan or something like that. Okay. So it is very unlikely that a attacker would be able to gain both uh, possession of something that you know, that's your password, or your physical device, like a token or your phone. That's why two-factor authentication is so helpful because you're pretty much going to know right away if you've lost your phone. We have become so tethered to our personal devices. If you lose your cell phone, you know, something's going to be up with your account and you're going to realize that pretty quickly. Right. So right. that's why it's so important to have, you know, those two different keys to get into your, yeah. uh, you know, your email or different accounts. Now, is there a, a, a question of scale here? Mm -hmm. I mean, is, is like a, your average small community college, are they at as much risk as say, you know, a major state university or kind of like a top flyer, I mean, are there differences in terms of how they should be protecting themselves? Well, the the idea is the same, but the the motivation of the attacker may be different. So if you're looking at large R1 institutions, uh, they're looking at um, maybe data sets that the institution has. Maybe it is more of about uh, institutional research and that, that could be monetized. But if there's any type of financial angle, there is going to be risk to your institution. If you have students and you have payroll, you have uh, student loan data, that's going to be uh, you know, enticing to an attacker. Yeah. So anytime anything can be monetized, you're at a risk. Now you might have a lower profile because you're a smaller institution, but that doesn't get you off the hook. That doesn't keep you off the radar. As long as you have authentication, you may have fewer resources to get it dedicate towards cybersecurity or privacy, but uh, the R1s are going to have more to protect. Yeah. What about for our readers or listeners who have, obviously everyone should have a certain layer of protection in right. place and an understanding of that, but maybe they're a little um, uncomfortable about where they are or how secure they are. What sort of steps would you recommend them in terms of doing an audit or uh, in terms of just kind of establishing how they feel about their current state. Do you mean at the institutional level or you mean at the individual level? At the institutional level. Okay. At the institutional level, uh, obviously having a, having a kind of a, you know, a data audit and inventory of, you know, what your systems are, having an understanding of who are all the third parties that you're, you're doing uh, business with, who has access to your data. Um, do you, what is your, uh, account provisioning process. Do you let alumni have um, access to their accounts indefinitely? Do you let um, applicants have access? I know some institutions as part of their onboarding, 
even if you apply your granted account. So mm -hmm. you are kind of granting an unknown into your institution. So having an idea of, you know, your identity management system of, of what systems that people have access to, all the different vendors that, or uh, service providers that you have access to. There were a lot of like, you know, big... Well, that's what I think. Yeah. So having a better understanding of your entire portfolio of information, where your data is, and that comes back to the idea of data minimization. Okay. If you don't have to keep track of something and you don't have to store it, you're better off not doing it because, um, as we know with um, different privacy uh, principles, even though you may do a pretty good job of anonymizing uh, the data right now, with enough data points, you're going to be able to, f to unmask somewhat. So the fewer data points that you don't need, and part of that comes back to this mentality that storage became so cheap mm -hmm. that it was just easier to n collect everything because you never know when you might need it. So by having a mentality of data minimization, you are in the long run protecting your systems because you are less likely to have something breached because that data is not there. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to the behaviors um, for a minute um, and again talk about how, um, in, that's really, no matter how good the technology gets, Correct. it's always going to be coming down to that human error, right? Um, are there precise um, strategies that can be put in place in, in terms of, you, you talked about the education aspect right. of, um, I guess I see in my own world with mean, just those constant reminders that pop up and yet the things still still kind of get in is is it a situation where pe people should just to expect to be hacked and then think about what's going to happen yes i i think um it really needs to be kind of a, a buyer beware mentality you need to be your own best advocate because um you may not think it, but your data has value because you have bank accounts, you have credit cards, you have mortgages, you have a credit history, you have uh, medical information. All this stuff can be monetized. So it is imperative for you to be your own best advocate and just expect that someone somewhere will try to extract value from stealing what you have. Mm. Now for, for those... Um who are listening and feel overwhelmed by all this, uh, what sort of recommendations do you have for them in terms of just taking those first steps? Well, the, the best thing to do is to not to panic because that's where um, the uh, social conditioning gets you. So if someone contacts you and says that it could be a... Uh, an AI cloned voice of someone that you know saying, I am, you know, in a prison, you know, outside the country and I need to have $10,000, you know, wired to me right away. Stop. Say, yeah. is this really necessary to do right now? Most of the time um, they're trying, the attackers are trying to play on uh, your emotions of it has to be done right now. Yeah. And that's when you're going to think less 
um, or if it is, that's why um, when an offer seems too good to be true. Right. It, it's it's just that if they're right. preying on your... It's that Nigerian prince. It, uh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So it's the idea of just stop and think. And that's why um, two-factor authentication is really good because it is kind of an interrupt. It has, even though it is a, a brief moment where sometimes you have to click through, it is a moment. Did I actually log into something? Did I actually do this? If you didn't, then don't acknowledge the two-factor authentication request because that's going to let somebody in right. if it wasn't you. So right. it is that pause. And, you know, it, it, it's also very much like that reading the terms of service. You just want to get to your stuff and you just click, right. click, click, click. So take a moment, think about what you're doing and the delay will actually help you in the long run. Now to the, the pandemic and the... Um you know, the switch to remote learning and for platforms going to where and not only remote but also the use of mobile devices as being attached to your network has that made things even more complicated than they were in the past i don't know if it changed that that much i think where the problem with the pandemic came in were institutions were scrambling to come up with a solution and they didn't have the chance to fully look at how the best way to do something and they were just under the gun of, we have to do this right now. We have to switch everything over, and we've got 48 hours to do it. So that time um, made things more difficult because just like what the example of the user, yeah, they didn't have a chance to think about what they were doing. Yeah. They just needed to know they needed to accomplish something just in that moment. Right, right. Now, when you look ahead... Mm -hmm. um, Give our listeners uh, and readers some kind of uh, a little bit of advanced warning of what the next threats are going to be. Are there, there things that you kind of see on the horizon that um, are going to constrict this never-ending war? What are the next battles going to be from your from your perspective? Uh, I think uh, a lot of the battles are going to be on the home front because of uh, the Internet of Things. Mm you're going to see more and more smart devices. I, you know, the, the keynote speaker this morning was joking about having, you know, an, an AI powered toaster. And do you really need that technology? Um, is that secure? Is there a password? Is it updated? Who's listening? Yeah. So it does make you paranoid, but it, um, there are some conveniences of their, their trade-offs, but I, I think, Part of it is going to be even more so at the individual level. So then, because, you know, as technology has moved and become less and less expensive, I mean, the thought when the first iPhone came out in 2007, the thought of everyone on the street having a smartphone did not seem possible because it, the, the iPhone was the first unsubsidized cell phone device out there and it was you know, pushing $1,000 even back then. Right. So the thought that everybody would have one was like, no. Yeah. You know, fast forward to now, you know, whether it's, you know, Google or Apple, everyone seems to have a smart toys um, unless they actively choose, no, I'm just going to go with a flip phone. Yeah. Um, so having that level of technology, that many levels of uh, a sensors um, all in your your pocket, you know, as I'm wearing a smartwatch. Yeah. Um, and 
to that point of the IoT stuff, so your personal data, you know, this watch has uh, my heart rate, it has, you know, my oxygen rate. You're going to be able to interpret different things about my behavior and my health from that device. So my personal data is even worth more mm -hmm. because you're going to be able to then tie that to where I was at the time, you know, um, you know, was I seeing a particular advertisement? Did that get an emotional reaction out of me? Can you get that data and then target advertisements? I mean, it could be, you know, the next level of, uh, you know, corporate personalization yeah. towards the individual yeah. based on your biometric data. And I think we got through at least 12 minutes without mentioning artificial intelligence, which might, might be a record so far this I've, year. I've tried to, I've tried to avoid it because generative AI is, I mean, the, the overall trajectory with AI, it's a little different. Right now, generative AI is kind of the hot topic. Yeah. Uh, so... I don't know if the future is going to be about generative AI. I think AI as a topic overall yeah. will be there. Yes. Um, but, but as you're saying, it's, it, it, it's an aspect of cybersecurity to yeah, where yes. it, do, those, um, those you know, ransomware attacks are just going to get that much more sophisticated. Right. The phishing so, attempts are going to be that much. So the, the stuff that has the, um, the social attack, the part that is mimicking people, that that's where generative AI is going to get more interesting, especially um, with uh, being able to craft uh, a phishing email that looks, sounds, has the same cadence as somebody that you know, and be able to impersonate it. So I think there's going to be some of that, you know, the what we would call spear phishing, where you're mm -hmm. actually targeting an individual rather than just kind of blanketing out. So yes, I think generative AI is in there, but machine learning and having the ability to interpret all of that data and put together all these different data sets of, like I was saying, health information, your location information, and be able to track where, you know, the behavior of people, you know, that, that gets kind of scary, but it would, that, that's more machine learning and kind of the bigger idea of AI than generative AI. Generative AI is really about sounding like a person, you know, passing the Turing test yeah. sort of thing. Well, you're not exactly making me feel better. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly, you know, it is, it's a very, um, it's scary topic. Yeah, yeah and uh, essential topic. But leave us with a, some, some words of, uh, of hope when it comes to this. I mean, if, if, if done properly, if, if you're having uh, ed proper education, we should get along, right? So I know that there wasn't a whole lot of hope in what I said, but... We're eventually going to figure this out because um, if you think about bank robberies, that used to be a big deal where people would, would rob banks and they would get away with it. And eventually it just didn't become a thing anymore. It's mostly just something that happens in movies. So I think that eventually we will figure out the technology. We'll figure out a way uh, either monetarily to remove the ability for people to uh get the financial incentives out of stealing it. And once the money is out of it, I think crime will move, the, the cyber crime will move more back into um, what it was before, whether it was, you know, 
an individual being targeted because they wanted into bit, they wanted information about them, but not so much as for um, anything that they could get monetarily. Right. So I think the technology eventually will catch up. Our policies, our monetary policies, um, the punishments for said crimes, our ability to detect and shut down those criminals, we'll get there. Yeah. We're not there yet. Yeah. But I do think um, we will, in if I'm looking into the crystal ball, we'll figure that out much like we did with bank robberies. It just will become a thing of the past. Yeah. That, that's good news to hear and a good way to end up this conversation. And it kind of, you know, from a consumer standpoint, uh, I see that myself in terms of credit card fraud. Yeah. Right? I mean, I'll get a call from my from MasterCard or, or Visa saying, are you pumping gas in Petaluma, California right now? We don't think you are. <laughs> right. And I say, no. And they say, great. They don't have to shut down the card. You don't have to go through and prove that you didn't do those sort of things. It's convenience and a protection for the consumer. So in, it sounds to me like that's yes. what you're kind of talking about. With the payment card industry, it's a little different because they shifted the burden from the consumer to the to the uh, the merchant. Yes. So that's where it's a little different. So the so the credit card company says we're not going to pay for it. The customer is not going to pay for it. The merchant has to pay for it. Okay. So they shifted the the burden of the cost. So it it made it it incentivized the merchant to a, do a be- better job of securing their own endpoints. Yeah. So that fraud would be less of a thing. Yeah. Um, but it's right. It was it was great for the consumer. It was great for the credit card companies. Not as good f- for uh, the merchants. But that idea of taking away that ability for someone to, to individually charge you for something or to take away your money and say, no, that's forgiven. We're going to redirect the funds. Yeah. And got your money back. So that would be a great day for the consumer. Excellent. Well, Joseph, thanks again. Thank you very much.